Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast and audio guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, long forgotten murders, all set within London's West End. Today's episode is about the murder of Soho prostitute Jacqueline Beery. It seemed like a simple open and shut case. There was a body, a culprit, and several eyewitnesses and in a case neatly wrapped up with a confession, a sentence, and a conviction. Justice was served, but something didn't sit right. Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details, and as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast... You'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. And this is Murder Mile. Episode 58. Jacqueline Beery. The Hooker, the Poker and the Stranger. Today, I'm standing on Peter Street in Soho, W1. One street northeast of the Soho Strangler's last victim, Dutch Lair. One street south of the Blackout Ripper's second victim, Evelyn Oatley. And one road west of Great Windmill Street, where an American GI stabbed an innocent man to death, and no one knows why. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Situated in the heart of Old Soho's red light district, Peter Street is a grotty little side street, barely 100 feet long by 15 feet wide. Surrounded by clip joints, brothels, and the infamous Walker's Court, known locally as Wanker's Court, as this tiny grubby alley is often chock full of men, walking through with their wives, proudly pretending not to notice row after row of seedy sex shops, when in fact they're mentally jotting down a shopping list of things to buy like a tube of sparkly lube, a wipe-clean copy of Chocolate Starfish 6, Dr. Chow's cock jumpstart kit, a set of anal bum beads in the shape of Boris Johnson's big fat lying face, and a Union Jack dildo which plays Royal Britannia. Thus Peter Street has always been synonymous with sex. 
Like most buildings on Peter Street, number three was once a brothel. And although, as a slim, three-storey, sandstone-bricked building, set dead centre in a former six-house terrace, it has changed very little in the last 200 years. But with black-painted sills, bright lights and a wide window, the ground floor is now home to a funky clothing store, modestly titled, A Supreme. Here, long lines of muttering youths, who see only on screens, breathe only through vapes, and talk only in grunts, farts and emojis, stand for hours in a roped-off area, eager to be one of three people ushered in by a gruff security guard to stare at a single pair of jeans, which they'll pick up without trying on and buy without wearing. As the second they've left, they flog it off for twice the price on eBay. And yet, they're oblivious that this was also the site of a shocking murder. As it was here, on Thursday the 2nd of November 1961, on the first floor of number 3 Peter Street, that a Soho sex worker called Jacqueline Beery was bludgeoned to death by a complete stranger. Barely eight hours later, having been witnessed at the crime scene, tracked to his home, searched, examined and arrested, 22-year-old David James Emery, a married factory worker from Stevenage, admitted to the murder of Jacqueline Beery. He was charged by the police and he made a full confession. I've been going to see a prostitute I know as Ruby at number 3 Peter Street for about five years. Today I decided to see her again. I got into the flat about 20 past one. The maid knows me well. When I got to Ruby's bedroom, there was a girl I'd never seen before. I pulled out two pounds from my pocket and gave her one. She said in broken English, That for me too? And put her fingers on the second note. I said, no, I'm skin. I need that for my fair home. She said, ah, yes. And playfully took it from my hand. I asked for it back and she turned away. I grabbed hold of her arm and I said, give me both of them back. I'm going. I prized her fingers open. We were both still laughing at the time. And when I did take my money back, she started jabbering away in French or Italian and came towards me. I pushed her and she fell over into the fireplace. She jumped up with something in her hand, a brass poker or something like that. She started shouting and aimed a blow at me with a poker and hit me on the front of the head. I grabbed hold of her and we were struggling together. I managed to get the poker or whatever it was from her. I pushed her away again and she fell across the dressing table. A bell started ringing. I thought it was the doorbell. I thought someone was coming up. I lost my head. I swung at her with the poker while she was across the dressing table. I hit her on the head. She fell down and rolled off the dressing table onto the floor. She then really started screaming. The bell was ringing and someone was banging on the door. I lunged at her with the poker and I think I hit her twice while she was on the floor. I saw her trying to get herself up. She looked very white and I saw a lot of blood. 
I opened the front door, and there was two women shouting in a foreign language. I said, she's all right. I ran into Peter Street, up Wardour Street, and through several roads. Then realising I still had the poker in the inside of my overcoat, as I turned into the next road, there weren't many people about, and I threw the poker into what I think was a doorway. I had no intention of killing the girl, or even harming her when I first went in the flat. I would only have been too pleased to leave when she started shouting. With the bell ringing, people banging on the door and screaming, and the fact that I was in a prostitute's flat, I lost my head. The statement of David James Emery was taken by Detective Superintendent Tennant, written up by Detective Inspector Bruce, and was used by both the defence and the prosecution as one of many pieces of evidence in his trial at the Old Bailey. It seemed like a simple open-and-shut case, with a confession, a culprit, and a conviction. But was it? David James Emery was born on the 19th of July 1939 to two hard-working parents, Cecil and Edith Emery, who had married one year earlier, and in keeping with their strict Catholic beliefs, their first child was born. Raised in the lower middle-class enclave of New Barnet, North London, ten weeks before the outbreak of World War II, although times were tough, with rationing, poverty and hunger rife, crime endemic and death a daily occurrence, David flourished, being blessed with good moral parents. His early years were only as traumatic as any wartime boy, as fun as any adventurous lad, and as idyllic as any only child. With three solid meals, a good home and loving parents, and with no incidents of disease, injury or abuse, by all accounts, including his own, David Emery had a very normal and happy upbringing. In 1946, age seven, his position as the baby of the family changed when another boy was born, swiftly followed by two more. So with his father out working all hours and his mother exhaustedly wrangling a houseful of boys, with David no longer his parents' sole focus, he became anxious, angry and upset. Educated at Oakley Infant School, although clearly intelligent, David was unruly and mischievous. Aged just 10, he was found guilty at Highgate Juvenile Court for making obscene calls. He was fined one pound, and on the same day he was charged with stealing a pound. These may seem like silly boyhood pranks, but they began a career of petty thefts, which were stupid, selfish, and impulsive. Age 12, David was found guilty of burglary, having broken into the flat above using a ladder from his bedroom and was placed on a two-year probation order. Eight months later, having stolen cigarettes, padlocks, plaster masks and a penknife, the probation order was increased to three years. And on the 12th of May 1952, aged just 14, being convicted of his fifth offence, the theft of boots, tools and a lamp from a builder's store, 
He was sentenced to two years at Neesworth House. Neesworth was a borstal, a tough institution where maladjusted boys, too young for prison and too wild for society, were sent to be re-educated with strict discipline. But being isolated from his family and friends during two of his most formative years, age 15, David was once again convicted of theft. And although these were all petty impulsive crimes, so far he had no history of violence. Upon release, he worked as a trainee taxidermist for E. Gerard and Sons in Camden Town. A slightly morbid role, but it gave him a purpose, an income, and easy access to Peter Street, where he would meet a sultry Soho sex worker who he would see for the next five years. And her name was Ruby. After 15 months, David left the taxidermist to find a better paid job, as although he lived in his parents' home, the going rate for sex was a quarter of his £4 weekly wage. But failing to hold down a job as a labourer, a trainee or an errand boy, and being dismissed twice, he funded his lifestyle with theft. Age 17, seen as an adult and subject to harsher sentences, he received one month in prison for theft, three months for wounding a police officer, and a further two years probation for petty theft. By all accounts, he wasn't a drunk, abusive, cruel, or a sadist. He stole, but he didn't do drugs. He broke the law, but he wasn't nasty. And excluding some semi-regular dalliances with a local sex worker on Peter Street, who said he was always decent, nice, and polite, he had no violent or sexual urges. On the 26th of May 1961, having married Pauline Ellis, the newlyweds moved into a small but well-furnished council house at number 31 Newgate in Stevenage. Being trained as a process operator for a large plastics firm called British Viz Queen, and earning £25 a week, with a good relationship, a nice home, and no convictions for the last two years, it seemed like David Emery had finally turned over a new leaf. Six months later, he would brutally bludgeon Jacqueline Beery to death. Roland Stevenson was a French prostitute who lived at number three Peter Street for eight years. She was neat, polite, kind and sweet, with a softly spoken Parisian lilt, a whiff of motherly perfume and a calm and reassuring demeanour. And as Roland wasn't a sexy name, she went by Ruby. As a professional sex worker, Ruby knew how to make her clients comfortable as with lines of nervous boys and overexcited men queuing up to spill their seed, a swift and happy outcome was reliant on keeping them relaxed. As with many punters, raised in single-sex schools, borstals and prisons, with very little, if any, experience of girls, some had problems with sexual stamina, some struggled to get an erection, 
and some feared being mocked about having an undersized penis. David was just 16 when he first visited Ruby. So as an impressionable teen, with hormones raging, fresh out of Borstal, and perhaps feeling abandoned in a family home full of boys, was Ruby his first sexual experience? Was she his first love? Or as an older woman, was she a much-needed mother figure? Separating her home life from the sex trade, with a private flat on the first floor of number 3 Peter Street, Ruby also kept a small bedroom on the first floor. Although only 15 feet long and wide, the room was bright, warm and homely, with a pink floral double bed with a large mirror behind. Matching pink floral curtains, which gave privacy from the window overlooking Peter Street, a stylish white dressing table, adorned with intricate porcelain figures, jewellery boxes, perfume bottles and makeup. And to ensure that the flat was warm and snug, although the fireplace had been boarded up many moons ago, in front of it was a coin-operated gas fire. Having aided her for the last five years, like many prostitutes, Ruby had a maid. Her name was Eileen Tomlin, and her duties were simple. Keep the rooms tidy, the bedsheets clean, and fresh flowers in the vase. With newspapers to read, an erotic magazine to peruse, and a supply of cups of tea from the communal kitchen next door, should a calming brew be needed to quell an unruly dicky droop. And always promptly arriving at 1pm, and being dismissed only when Ruby was done. In order to keep the riffraff out, the only access to the first floor flat was via a black front door on Peter Street, which was always locked, and was only opened by Eileen to those she knew, liked, and trusted. The morning of Thursday the 2nd of November 1961 was bright and sunny. As per usual, 22-year-old fair-haired David Emery washed, had breakfast, and being dressed in a grey suit, a fawn overcoat, a white shirt and black shoes, he kissed his wife goodbye and left their home at number 31 Newgate. It was an ordinary day. His mood was good, his marriage was sound, his wage was decent, and with no kids, debts or impending pregnancy, he had no stress, grief or worries. Only, that morning, he didn't go to work at British Viz Queen. Instead, he hopped on the train to King's Cross and headed into Soho. Eileen Tomlin arrived at 1pm sharp, and in the first floor kitchen, next door to Ruby's room, she made a list of essentials. Tea, milk, bread and butter and popped to the Peter Street grocery store. As Eileen descended the stairs, the doorbell rang. Opening the door, before her stood David Emery, a regular client of Ruby's, who Eileen knew by name, face, and by a few scant details, having chatted in passing over the last five years. He was sober, pleasant, and polite. Sensing nothing out of the ordinary, she let David in, and he made his usual way 
up to Ruby's bedroom. With no cue at the grocer's, Eileen was gone no longer than three minutes. As David pushed open the white bedroom door, he felt the usual warmth of the gas fire. He saw the neat array of porcelain figures on her dressing table and smelt the familiar scent of fresh flowers. But in Ruby's bed, tucked between her pink floral sheets, he came face to face with a stranger. That morning, Ruby had left for Paris to stay a few weeks with her family. Needing a trusted friend to look after her home, as well as her business and clients, she loaned out her flat to her pal, Jackie. Born in Paris, Jacqueline Christiane Henrietta Biry was a perfect choice, as having been a professional sex worker since she was 15, 26-year-old Jackie had known Ruby for nine years. She worked hard, she rarely drank, and as a Catholic who was never without her silver crucifix, she was moral and fair. That aside, she was also playful, well-mannered, even-tempered, and undeniably pretty. As David entered the bedroom, he realized that this wasn't Ruby, a lady he liked, trusted, and maybe even loved. But with Jackie being a stunning French brunette, with a slender figure, a sweet fresh face, and long fluttering lashes, it can be easy to see how a horny young man may become smitten. With Jackie wearing very little, except a matching black bra, suspender belt and knickers, a short grey skirt and a light quilted housecoat. Forgoing his usual routine, David pulled two pounds from his pocket, and as was the going rate for sex, he handed her a single one-pound note. According to his statement, having been handed the first note, Jackie playfully took the second note, and in broken English said, That for me too? He replied, No, I'm skin. I need it for my fair home. Which, not being a native speaker, she may not have understood. So believing he was being robbed, David grabbed her by the arm and said, Give me them both back. I'm going. Whether this happened, we only have his word. But the autopsy confirmed there was some light bruising around her left wrist. Realising he was leaving and she wouldn't be paid, she started jabbering in French and came towards me. I pushed her and she fell over into the fireplace. With no burns on her body or charring on her clothes, she may have missed the fire or it may not have been on. But her autopsy confirmed she had a small graze on the front of her left shin, consistent with hitting something below knee height. She jumped up with something in her hand. It might have been a brass poker. She was shouting and she aimed a blow at my head. Later, when examined by the police doctor, it was confirmed that David had a small abrasion, half an inch long, across his hairline, caused by something blunt but not heavy. At this point, four independent witnesses next door at number two Peter Street heard Jackie screaming. They were Leona Strang, a prostitute in the front first floor flat, her maid Nella Dalava, 
Genevieve Evans, a prostitute in the rear first floor flat, and the housekeeper, Brenda Cackervale, who all rushed outside to the front door of number three Peter Street. But with Eileen still at the grocer's, the black front door was locked. David stated, I managed to get the poker from her. I pushed her away and she fell across the dressing table. A bell started ringing. I thought it was the doorbell. I thought someone was coming up. Only they couldn't. Unable to get in, and with Jackie's screams more pained and terrified, as Leona, Nella and Geraldine furiously banged on the front door, raising hell and ringing the doorbell, Brenda dashed back to her flat to find the spare set of keys to number three Peter Street. I lost my head. I swung at her with a poker while she was across the dressing table. I hit her on the head. She fell down and rolled off the dressing table onto the floor. With a thick spatter of type AB negative blood up the wall between the dressing table and the window and with a four and a half centimeter break to the right of the back of their head, the pathologist confirmed that the back of Jackie's skull had been fractured by a heavy blunt object and that, like tiny knives, sharp shards of bone had embedded into her brain. She then really started screaming. The bell was still ringing and someone was banging on the door. I lunged at her with the poker. I think I hit her twice while she was on the floor. Amidst a pool of blood, forensics officers found a clump of brown hair driven one inch deep into a hole in the linoleum. And with two gaping wounds behind her left ear and on her left temple, and her head a patchwork of fractures. As she moved, the shattered fragments of her smashed skull could be heard scraping together. And then, Jackie fell silent. The police arrived within two minutes. The ambulance within six and with Jackie still clinging to life, she was transferred to Middlesex Hospital. But with her skull smashed, her brain swollen, and her body fitting uncontrollably, with a lethally sharp shard of bone having severed her carotid artery, 26-year-old Jacqueline Beery died at 5pm. David Emery continued his statement. I opened the door and there were two women shouting in a foreign language. Having found a spare set of keys, the ladies dashed into number three Peter Street as David hastily descended the stairs. Leona and Nella tried to block his escape. Brenda grabbed his coat, and as he barged them aside, he cracked his head on the top of the door. Leona later stated, It was a heavy thump. I heard the noise of it. And although Genevieve tried to hold the front door shut, David thumped her hard across the face, screaming, What's going on here? Everyone's mad! By the time Eileen Tomlin returned, she saw David Emery flee, and it was all over. David Emery ran up Wardour Street, realising I still had the poker in the inside pocket of my overcoat. As I turned into the next road, believed to be Bateman Street, 
I threw the poker into what I think was a doorway. And although the police searched for it, the murder weapon was never found. PC Clifford Polk of West End Central Police Station was the first on the scene. Six eyewitnesses gave him matching descriptions of the man. Eileen Tomlin gave him a name. And eight hours later, David Emery was arrested. Being in the presence of his wife, he initially made a false confession, but later corrected this. He gave a blood sample, type A, the scrapings from under his fingernails reacted positively to blood, and his grey suit, fawn overcoat, white shirt and black shoes all had traces of type AB negative blood. Under interrogation, David feared for his life, asking, Can I be hanged for this? As with the UK death penalty just four years from being abolished, if found guilty, he could be executed, but only if during the murder he had stolen something. And although he was a convicted thief, there were no signs of robbery. And on the 19th of December 1961, having pleaded not guilty to murder, but guilty to manslaughter, with no other witness to contradict the story that Jacqueline Beery hadn't attempted to rob him of a one-pound note, David James Emery was found guilty of manslaughter and sent to prison for just six years. As David stated, I had no intention of killing the girl or even harming her when I first went into the flat. With a bell ringing, people banging on the door and screaming and the fact that I was in a prostitute's flat, I lost my head. So far, most of his story tallies up. Only, in the bedroom, someone had tried to mop up the blood with a jumper, later found hidden under the sink, and on the outside of the white bedroom door, it was heavily smeared in blood. He claimed, She jumped up with something in her hand. It might have been a brass poker. She aimed a blow at my head. Except Leonis Strang stated, he pushed me and banged his head on the top of the door. It was a heavy thud. An injury the police doctor agreed was more consistent with a slight bump than a blunt force trauma. But being concussed, maybe David forgot. He also confessed, I swung at her with a poker while she was across the dressing table. I hit her on the head and she rolled off onto the floor. A miraculous feat. Considering that on the stylish white dressing table, adorned with intricate porcelain figurines, jewellery boxes, perfume bottles and an array of makeup, not a single item was damaged, spilt or out of place. No blood was found on the dressing table and the police confirmed there were no signs of a struggle in the room. And even more baffling is the murder weapon itself. Having pushed Jackie so she fell over into the fireplace, David claimed she jumped up with something in her hand. It might have been a brass poker. Only it can't have been. As with the old fireplace having been boarded up many moons ago, it was replaced by a coin-operated gas fire, which had no need for any coal, logs 
and especially a fire poker. Ruby later confirmed, I have never had a poker. I have never kept a weapon in the flat which could hit anyone. A statement corroborated by Eileen Tomlin, who had cleaned the bedroom just the night before and confirmed, there's nothing in the flat heavy enough to hit anyone with. And having thoroughly searched, no possible murder weapon was found. Which leaves us with several unanswered questions. Was this an accident, a robbery, or an assault? Where did the fire poker come from and go? Why did David have so much hatred for a total stranger? And if Jacqueline Beery wasn't his intended target, was he really here to murder Ruby? And if so, why? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Don't forget, if you're a murky miler, to stay tuned for more extra goodies after the break. But before that, here's my recommended podcasts of the week. Do you like to mix creepy with your history? Hi, I'm Diane, host of the History Ghost Bump podcast a podcast that is basically a ghost tour for the theater of the mind, featuring the history and hauntings of places that are infamous and many places you probably have never heard of before. Are these places truly haunted? I leave that up to you to decide. Join me if you dare. Check out historyghostbump.com. See? That's my feet! And horror. The military advised that the flesh-eating pigeons can only be stopped by destroying the brainstem, and that they do not poop. That makes no sense. Why did they do that? One podcast fights the forces of evil. The new and improved diabolical disintegrating death ray! <laughs> Triumphs over adversity. Now, I'm not sure how to pronounce this word. And brings hope. Live your life. Joy. (laughs) And silliness. Perfectly normal. That podcast is Release the Clowns. Coming to ears near your head now. Release the Clowns sketch comedy podcast on Podbean, iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, and all reputable platforms. This is most pleasing. Yes, quite marvellous. A huge thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who are El Camille Anderson and Miss E. Green. With a warm thank you to everyone who has left a lovely review on iTunes or your favourite podcatcher. I really do read them all. They are all hugely appreciated and I thank you. It only takes a few minutes to do a review, but for small, independent podcasts like myself, it really does make the difference. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, 
with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. That was exhausting. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to <laughs> oh welcome to Extra Mile. Uh, if you haven't uh, tuned in for Extra Mile before, this is the unedited, unscripted bit end of the show uh, where we just go through some details. I'm, as usual, just going to open the windows and doors because I've been recording with the windows and doors shut. And you will understand why when I open these doors. There you go. Right next to a scrapyard. I'm back while I was filming episode... F- filming? Recording episode four of uh, the Blackout Ripper. Uh, and it's right next to a scrapyard. It's right next to uh, um, two main lines. Uh, I'm just putting on a cup of tea, as always, because I need a cup of tea. Uh, and it's really noisy. And a minute ago, oh, and there's boats going past as well. And I'm near a water point, so people are filling up with water. Uh, and a couple of minutes ago, a lady decided to have a phone call outside my boat, which was lovely. It was really kind of her. She was having a good old netter to her chum. So, uh, so that was me. Tr- oh, things falling. Uh, that's me trying to record this episode. Uh, and it, as you can probably tell, I've got a bit of a cold as well. I've got man flu. I'm battling through it. I'm battling through. Oh, see, I'm man flu. So I forgot to put the um, forgot to put the gas on. Uh, there we go. Right, tea's on the go. Right, I'm coming back. Oh dear lord, that was hot work. I'm going through the sweaty phase of ma- of man flu at the moment. It's horrible. Oh, I'm dying. This is, my, what day is it today? Monday. 
So Friday night I started feeling unwell. Saturday I woke up and thought, oh no, it's tonsillitis. Really felt like tonsillitis. I couldn't couldn't gulp, couldn't breathe. But I had two tours booked in. I had a, a lady's birthday, which was very nice, and then I had a, a, a Hindu with uh, 17 ladies on it, which was really good. We had fun, but I had to do those back-to-back <coughs> and then do another tour in the morning. Oh, the three in 24 hours. Almost killed me. Oh. And uh, um, so, but, oh, little boat's going past now. Chug, 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 chug. I don't mind now because it's the unedited bit. They can go past as much as they like. <sighs> um, just wave to everyone. They didn't see me, but there we go. Uh, so I'm in the place, uh, if you go back to the Blackout Ripper episode four, that was the place where uh, I think we I think we had uh, Don Juan the Coot, that coot who was desperate to get his end away and was desperate to have sex with everything. Well, there's some coots outside who have little babies outside, and I don't I don't know whether it's the original coot or whether that's the grown-up baby from last time. Ooh, very exciting. So we don't know. Don't really know. <coughs> oh dear, dying here, dying. Um, so coots aside, scrapyard aside, uh, man flu aside. Uh, oh god, yeah, I've got to get got to be in Scotland tomorrow as well. I've got to start editing this and be in Scotland. 800 mile round trip, round trip to uh, go and see my nan because uh, I'm a carer. Uh, she's in a care home and she doesn't know who I am anymore. So it's like it's it's a really long journey. I go I go up just to make sure she's okay. She is. I know she is. But I just like to make sure she's okay and take her some chocolate just to cheer her up. But she's no idea what's going on anymore. But there we go. Um, so this is a weird one. So this is the first episode of the new. Uh, Murder Mile series uh, if you haven't caught up so far you're probably thinking what is this why is this episode here uh, obviously I ended Murder Mile before uh, things went a little bit weird over Christmas I'm not going to go into details but I was, it was kind of quite stressful trying to pull out as many episodes as we can and someone was trying to sue me uh, I won't go into details about that but it turned out to be a complete nutter it was just I get I get messages from people all the time. Some people are really lovely. Some people are just absolute nut jobs. And this one was like threatening me with court action. And then I did my research. I, I panicked about it. I shut everything down. It really stressed me out. That was Christmas Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Boxing Day, day after Boxing Day. Really stressed me out. Uh, and then I did my research when I calmed down. After I'd shut loads of stuff down, then I went, hang on. It's not even real. It's just a nut job. This person is just nutter, and they have nothing to do with this case at all. Um, so that's why I shut down Murder Mile. But then, obviously, I, I refound. Yeah, you know, people. Everyone sent me really lovely messages, so I decided to keep Murder Mile going. And then I decided to do it as just the multi-part series. So I, I re I've already done that. I've researched the new multi-part series. That's research. That's going to come out soon. <laughs> Still needs a lot of research though, because there's bits that I want to find out that aren't in the files and I have picked up other biographies about it and it's and it's not there as well so I want these extra bits uh but when I was in the archives I started researching some more um single cases like this one uh ones that I'd listed before and I was like oh I wonder what they're really about and you know what just by reading them I, I kind of really found my mojo back and uh I like doing it. I like doing the research. I like just grabbing a file and opening it up, and you don't know what it is. It could be anything, 
and literally going through it. Oh, kettle's, kettle's going. Oh, I've got cake as well. Of course I've got cake. I've got bake or tart. I've got some nice ones from Sainsbury's. Because I had a good weekend, I splashed out. And they're really nice and soft. Oh, frenzy pan. You know how much I love frenzy pan. Uh, so, yeah, uh, no, so I was researching some cases. I, I was doing like one a day. Uh, and I forgot how much I love it. I really do love the research. It's really good fun. It's like, oh, have I put sugar in? I don't know. I'm going to put another sugar in. Crazy. Um, it's like reading, I've mentioned it before, it's like reading a novel that someone's dropped on the floor, but it's got no page numbers on it. So you literally just pick up a page and you're starting pretty much in the middle and you won't know what it's about. But it's good fun. It's entertaining. It's... Um, and for me, I, I find that that's a, a good way to research it because you don't know. You, do you know, someone hasn't read it before and told you what you're meant to think, which is why I, I slightly worry about using books because you're getting someone else's opinion, their beliefs, uh, or, or sometimes no beliefs. Some I've read one biography recently where someone just they didn't have an opinion at all. I was like, what the flip is this? Uh, but I, I prefer if you, if you attack something cold, then literally you can start finding pieces yourself. You start investigating yourself, and it takes a lot longer. But I, I find it. I find it. It's 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 what I enjoy. I enjoy it because it it helps me put a new perspective on a case. And uh, not for everyone, but uh, I enjoy it. Anyway, so I started doing that. Started finding some new cases. Started drawing up a list of new uh, single parters, double parters, multi parters, and I was like, oh, this is really good. I can start powering through this, and with uh, Mini Mile as well. Uh, I really enjoyed making them. I think I found my feet around episode 3-4. It started really picking up. We had some fun. A lot of nice feedback from people. Everyone seemed to enjoy it. So uh, so that's all good. So, um, so what I'm doing now is... Uh, uh, basically your murder mile is now going to be in three parts now so which is good for me that gives me time to re to relax when i need to but it also means i can put out an episode so we have your regular murder mile episodes which is like what we've just done now the jacqueline beery episode we will always end a season with a big multi-parter i will gear up for that uh if I need space in between to have a bit of a rest, we'll do like a big extra mile episode with some interesting stuff in there. But because I can do them in about three days now instead of a murder mile episode, which takes like 800 years. <coughs> it sometimes takes eight or nine days to do an episode, which is not easy when you're doing them every week. Mini mile, I can do them in about three days. Uh, they're good fun. So that'll be the shape of murder mile to come. So that gives me time, do you know? If I'm running out of time, it gives me a chance to stop and refresh and uh, have a bit of a rest, but also put out an episode. Which is why you're probably saying, hang on, why have you started the season where you're two weeks late already? So, if you don't follow me on social media, you won't know this, but this is what happened. I found a really interesting case, and I thought, oh, let's open up with this one. This one's different. This is a different opening to Murder Mile. Sorry, I'm chewing my mouth slightly because I had my fillings done a couple of weeks ago uh and they haven't bedded in yet i keep biting my tongue and it's really annoying uh, i found a case that was really interesting i thought oh yeah this will do we'll we'll have this one different from all the other cases it was uh, a murder in a nightclub basically a guy was murdered there were 40 people in the nightclub it's a small nightclub real it's like the size of someone's front room but no one references the killer's name and 
basically no one saw it even though there's no there's clear sight lines in the club and there were no booths and even though people were facing away there was enough time for everyone to see it wasn't too dark it, it was noisy but it wasn't too noisy and I thought this is interesting so I did the first parter which was I mean it was a huge file it was an absolute whopper because the police had so little information because the witnesses many witnesses weren't talking or they'd given misinformation or they were just confused or you know there was a lot going on so what I did was the first episode about how confusing the case is for the police then I did part two of how they solved it which I thought that'll be fantastic you know that'll go down well we'll enjoy that uh, I wrote it. I thought I did a really good job. It was different from a usual Murderwell. Oh, um, I recorded it. All went well. Coot was outside, as always, making noise. Uh, no, I recorded it in a nice, quiet place. So it, it was actually easy to edit. Uh, then I, I had fun with the edit, and it sounded really good. And I, I got it all geared up to go out. And I, I re-listened to it again, just to check for any mistakes that were in there, because I like don't like having mistakes in there. And um, when I re-listened to it, I was just like, this is really substandard. I just didn't feel it was good. And I'm not being prissy about it. I'm not being a perfectionist. It just, there was nothing in it. I just didn't feel, there was a lot of information. It was a little bit confusing. I didn't feel that there was uh, there was some heart in it. I didn't feel that there was some emotion going on. And even though it was a difficult story, because the guy who gets shot, really you don't give a shit about him. And I didn't want you to. Um... But there was, and, and there's no one in there really to sympathise with. It was kind of like it makes it harder. So I need, I've, so so I made a, a decision just before I was about to roll it out to. Um, uh, well, this was Saturday, wasn't it? Saturday just gone. I was just about to roll it out, and I made the decision overnight because I wasn't sleeping because this bloody cold. Um, I made the decision uh, to pull it. I thought I would rather, I'd rather have you wait two weeks. Uh, then listen to two substandard episodes and just think, oh, what the hell is this shit? So, uh, yeah, that's what I've done. So, uh, but but by that point, I was already starting to... I'd already mostly written this episode, which was going to be my episode 60. I was kind of happy with it. It feels more like a Murder Mile episode uh, or what you'd expect from a Murder Mile episode. There's not really a lot of information in there about Jacqueline Beery. Uh, so we don't go into her past history uh of who she is so you can sympathize with her more but i thought it was interesting uh doing a story where we hear the uh the confession first and it all sounds all wrapped up and then you hear the confession and the evidence going with it so that's all coming together and then hopefully at the end you hear the bit and you go oh hang on how did we miss that that was all there that's yeah um what i'll do is i'll post this online there's um loads of crime scene photos there's some regular ones of the room, there's some autopsy ones, so be careful, I'll, I'll split them up uh, so you know which ones to look at and which ones you don't want to look at if you don't want to because there's photos of head injuries there. But when you look at the room, it makes perfect sense. Like You look at it and you go, oh yeah, there's the dressing table and everything's in place. There's her bed, bed's barely moved, it looks like she's just got out of bed. You can see on the floor where obviously she was dying and she was bleeding and there's there's some towels on the floor and things like that and, and uh, a pillow that um uh, pc poker was the first policeman in there he was trying to uh help her and uh he put a pillow under her head uh before the ambulance arrived uh but i'll, I'll show you the pictures and you, you'll also see the door on there that's smeared with blood on the outside it looks weird it's 
It doesn't look like someone just walked past it accidentally. It looks like it's smeared. You have a look at the pictures. It's it's only something you can really see and have a look at. So I'll be posting those. But here's some things that um, uh, weren't mentioned in the episode because, especially at the end, I needed to. I didn't want to go into too many details. That's the problem I made with that the first two episodes that I cut out. Too much information. So now, I decided with this one just to really crack through it after we got past the murder and things like that we just crack through let's get to the end so um after the murder leona strang who was a prostitute at number two peter street next door in the first floor flat she said she saw a man coming downstairs who she identified as david emery he pushed me and banged his head on the top of the door i heard the noise of it it was a loud thwack i've added that that word um which explains the injury she said she heard screaming and that Jackie was shouting, uh, oh, oh, no, oh, no. I didn't add that in because I didn't know how to pronounce it. It is no, but oh, no, it just sounded stupid. And I didn't want to fuck it up. Oh, blue word there. There we go. Sorry about that. Um, he, uh, Leona says that as David was leaving the house, he had nothing in his hands. Now, this is kind of important because... Um, the police went through all the witnesses and said, did he have anything in his hands? And all of them said no, because they wanted to find out. Even though he said he had the poker in his pocket, they needed to check his hands as well, just in case it was in his hands, but it wasn't. No one says it was. Uh, with regards to this door, it wasn't the street door. It was the door coming out the first set of flats as you're coming downstairs. Uh, Leona said the door is not very high and you can easily catch your head on it. He wasn't particularly tall anyway. Um, I didn't add this into the story, but PC Clifford Polk, uh, he arrived at 1.29, uh, which is just a few minutes after the murder. He was already in Wardour Street, which is the next street to Peter Street. Uh, he heard the screaming, and one of the women approached him, uh, so he was first on scene. Genevieve Evans, who's a prostitute next door as well. Oh, come on, nose, don't block up now. I need one of my... I'm gonna, I'm gonna, if it's okay with you, I'm going to have one of my menthol sweeties. Mmm, well, I needed that. Right, mm. I'm going to suck on this while I'm, um, uh, uh, etc. My brain has really gone. I've got man flu. I really, man flu is kicking in. Although it's on its way out, but I'm dying. Um, Genevieve Evans, the prostitute at number two, Peter Street. Um, uh, as it said, uh, she tried to hold the door shut to detain the man. He punched her twice in the face and then left as he left. He shouted, what's the matter here? Everybody's mad. She identified him as David. She said his hands were empty and he ran up Wardour Street. She did actually chase him, but she lost him. There were other witnesses in the street at the same time. James Hopkins, who was a bookseller in number five Walker's Court. Bookseller, inverted commas, because obviously Walker's Court is Wanker's Court. So it's obviously a porno shop. Uh, was standing in Peter Street at the time. He confirmed that David did say what's going on. Uh, I don't know what all this is about. They're all mad in there. Uh, he identified uh, David and said he ran up Wardour Street and that he had nothing in his hands. In fact, he said, I saw both hands. He threw them out as he spoke. Quite a few people said this as well. The witnesses were really good. They all gave... Unlike the uh, the episode that I've just double-deleted, the two episodes, uh, that was all about people who are supposed to see the same thing and they're all in the same place, but they saw different things which is what intrigued me to about the case whereas this one 
everyone interestingly everyone saw exactly the same which is great i guess it was daylight i guess everyone was looking in the right direction there was no distractions um and also you know david ran out of the house going what the hell is going on like a like a c- complete prick with his arms out so obviously everyone was looking at his direction um now i miss this out the story as well because it slowed the story down uh he said he ran out of the building and up wardour street which makes sense and then he ran through several side streets uh it looks like he went northwest uh, when he realized he still had the poker in his inside overcoat pocket and then he threw it into a doorway now he later said that this is Bateman Street, which makes sense. That's northwest. It's over Wardour Street, over Dean Street, and then it's a left. So it's about actually it's through Maid Court. So actually it's about thirty seconds run, if that. Uh, so that would probably be his fastest route. Um, where did I get to? He ran up to Tottenham Court Road, which makes sense. That is a right, and that's only about three minute run from there. He caught the bus to King's Cross, and then he got the train home that makes perfect sense whilst he was on the bus he realized that his face was covered in sweat and when he tried to wipe it off with a rag that he had he found that there was a lot of blood on his head obviously he was bleeding from that abrasion to his head which he said was from uh jackie hitting him over the head with the poker but leona says that it would have come from uh, when he hit his head on the door as someone <laughs> in my old house, so I used to live with my dad and my stepmom, very old house, 16th century house, very nice. But all the doorways are for people who are like under five foot tall, which is great for my stepmom because she's tiny. But for me and my dad, awful because we're all roughly around six foot. And for the first month, she would walk around the house and just see us sprawled out on the floor with blood pouring from her head because we'd always hit our heads on the door constantly. So uh, I entirely get this, where he's coming from with this. Um, so yet, so the blood, uh, unlikely that it was Jackie's, more than likely that it was his. Uh, and while he was on the train going home, he tried to wipe off the blood from his suit. I thought I recognised people going past. So easily distracted. Uh, while he was on the train going home, he, he realised he, he, he was covered in blood. He tried to wipe it off uh, from his suit in the toilet. There were several police on scene that day. Um, PC Peter Petri. PC Peter Petri. PC Peter Petri was called. He was in the radio car. He received a call at 129. Um, he went straight to 3 Peter Street. Uh, he arrived there at 135. There were already two. Uh, he was with PC uh, Sanders. They arrived in the pro- property. The women showed him upstairs along the first floor landing. And uh, when they got there, uh, PC Poke was already in there. As already mentioned, uh, Jackie was lying on her back, heavily bleeding from large cuts to the head. I'll show you the autopsy pictures are in there. They are big cuts. And she had multiple fractures on her head. Um, and there were three other women there who were obviously uh, Leona, Nella and uh, Geraldine. But it could be Brenda there as well. Uh, and PC Poke was trying to... St- trying to stem the flow of blood with a towel he'd also put a um um a pillow under her head if you look at the crime scene the the those are still there so any anything on the floor that you see is uh what pc poke used to try and kind of quell the blood obviously the police only had basic uh first aid training in that era um the ambulance did arrive 
also this was an era where we didn't really have paramedics that hadn't been established yet all we had was really ambulance drivers with very very basic first aid training so there's not really a lot that they could do um obviously and also this was an era when if you were in the police car you'd obviously have got police radio but regular coppers hadn't got police radios at that point so it was still the early 1960s um so this was interesting i didn't put it in the story because it slowed it down but jo- pc john smart uh was posted to box 61 which is in piccadilly circus right in the middle of piccadilly circus on the corner of glasshouse street where black hat ripper picked up some of his victims underneath the illuminated bovril sign to the famous piccadilly circus signage um he'd been posted there between 1 to 2 p.m um and at 1.35 p.m. he received through the phone box an emergency call to go uh, to Peter Street, where he assisted with the stretcher. You can see why I didn't put it in, but I kind of like the idea of a policeman standing there waiting to receive a call. Um, when Geraldine, oh, it's Geraldine, when Gerald Gardner arrived, he was the ambulance driver. Uh, he'd been notified he'd come from uh, the Russell Square Ambulance Station, which drive-wise is about two minutes away. He arrived at 1.32, so that was pretty fast considering the call uh him and his partner her uh sydney herbert not partner as in partner partner but you know they work together oh no you you never know 1960s um um they came in they gave us the reference of uh what jacqueline was wearing they said she was wearing a gray skirt i didn't put this in because this throws things off but they said she was wearing a gray skirt it was slightly up around her thighs to the point where they could see that she was wearing black panties. I hate using the word panties, but that's the word they use. Um, she was also wearing a black bra, and the rest of her top was halfway up, so she was, half of her was exposed. And one of the arms wasn't in her housecoat. She was unconscious and bleeding uh, from the left ear. Um, now, was that the paramedics trying to help her, or... Was this part of a... Was it a sexual assault? We don't know. I mean, or, or was that just how she fell? Or we don't know. So I, I haven't put that in. But that it, there is something there that could say maybe it was a sexual assault. Um, I whizzed through this in the story as well. But um, So at 10.30pm that day, Detective Inspector Leslie Bruce was present with Detective Inspector McCaffrey of the Metropolitan Police Laboratory and with the assistance of Detective Inspector Holsey of the Hertfordshire Police. Um, I should point out that West End Central is in Soho, but Hertfordshire Police is in Hertfordshire, which is not in London. If you're not from London, it's basically a county north uh, north outside London. So you've got Essex to kind of the right, then you've got next to it, you've got Hertfordshire, and you've got Middlesex. So you can't just go into a different... Uh, a different county and start if you're a copper just doing whatever you like if you're uh, a copper and you go into a different borough um you go into a different borough then you have to ask permission of those police and you have to get their assistance it's, it's their neck of the woods um so uh with the assistance of detective inspector holsey of the hertfordshire police um ds tenant interviewed david emery and said i'm making inquiries regarding a woman named jacqueline Beery." dog barking obviously he didn't say that that's outside who was attacked in a flat at number three peter street at about 1 15 p.m today and has since died you answer the description of a man seen to enter the flat shortly before and leave immediately afterwards 
I understand you have told Inspector Holsey that you were in Hitchin today. Hitchin's not too far away from Stevenage, uh, but it's 35 miles away from Soho. It's 35 miles north. So he's saying that he wasn't anywhere near. Uh, that you were in Hitchin today, and then at, at about 1pm, i.e. the time of the, time of the murder, you bought some fish and chips from a shop near the Bricklayer's Arms public house in St Mary's Square, Hitchin. I'm going to take you back to London for further inquiries, but before I do so, I intend to visit your house. That's when David was cautioned, and he replied, that's ridiculous. Um, they, I was, as mentioned, they examined the prisoner's hands, took scrapings from under his fingernails, and his fingers reacted positively to a blood test. Um, a, a bl blood test meaning they tested his fingers to see if there were traces of blood on his fingers than there were under his nails than there were. Um, obviously by that point they couldn't tell what type of blood it was uh, Detective Inspector George Holsey as heart of Hertfordshire Police said I, uh, he said that, so David said to Detective Inspector Hitchin I've been in Hitchin all day I went over by bus at 10.30am and had a walk around Detective Inspector said can, can anyone verify this statement and David said no I never saw a soul and then he reconfirmed that he'd bought fish and chips at one o'clock, which was absolute BS. But obviously, his wife was next to him as he was making that statement, so he made a different statement when his wife wasn't there. At around 7.35pm, I mentioned this in the story, after another interview, David Emery asked, can I be hanged for this? Uh, and the police said, not unless it is, it is established that you killed her in the, f in the, in the course of furtherance furtherance of stealing and our inquiries are by no means complete and that's because back in the days when britain still had the death penalty if you killed someone it wasn't instantly a death penalty it could it could be a life or a death penalty but there were reasons why you would be uh, given a death penalty over a life sentence so um this one particularly is if you steal something while yeah, uh, if you're committing a robbery and then you steal someone, steal someone. If you commit a robbery and then you murder someone, that is furtherance. So basically, they find they, it's weird, weird how this comes up. They thought that was more severe. So if you murder someone, then you steal something from them. That's more severe than just just murdering them, which I find baffling because really it should be. You know, the, the theft of something is irrelevant, really. When you when you're considering you're taking someone's life, why should it be more important? Or worse, if you steal a tin of beans off them. You know, it doesn't make sense at all. There were other other elements in there. Uh, reasons why you would be executed. Uh, that would be, uh, if you're blowing up a naval ship, shipyard. I almost said shityard, yeah, then. Um, um, oh, my brain. Killing a policeman was one of them. Um, but that was pretty much it. There was a couple of others in there. Treason, I think, was one as well. But it was there were really vague details. There was nothing really in there that says, you know, you could kill 15 people and just get a life sentence or a series of life, life sentences. But if you kill one person and you decide um, to kill, like, uh, to, 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 to steal a Bakewell tart, mm, Bakewell tart, which makes sense, then you'd be executed. Um, obviously we've seen this before in episode 6 um, which was that uh, the lady who was running the kind of the antique shop and the guy came in to buy an uh, uh, a antique uh, 
Indian sword and then he stabbed her to death but he stabbed her using one of her own knives uh, and he took the knife and therefore that was murder but in the furtherance of uh, stealing so therefore he was executed but the police investigate the scene they search the flat um, and from what they could tell nothing was taken uh, Jackie had three purses well two purses in the handbag uh, a black purse which contained four pounds and five shillings which was in the dressing table a black purse in the wardrobe which came contained 57 shillings and a white handbag from the wardrobe which contained a, a safe de safe deposit key nothing was taken um mm, so i'm just chewing on this now um so they couldn't find anything that was stolen so they couldn't charge him with theft um murder in the furtherance of theft I can barely say those words. I'm glad we don't have the death penalty anymore because I can't bloody say it. Um, um, they searched his home at 11 p.m. that night. That was 31 Newgate. Uh, I've checked. 31 Newgate isn't there anymore. There are some houses there now, but they're new, newish houses. They're not the ones that were built in, in his day, and 31 is gone. Um, Pauline, his wife, was there. I don't really know much about her. Her house, the, the house was searched. They took his clothes and found all the blood on it. Oh dear! They also found um, the blood-stained cloth that he used to mop his brow, his comb, and his torch. Uh, there's nothing said about whether there was blood on the comb or the torch or the size of the torch, because obviously you're looking for a blunt instrument. Uh, but they didn't mention that there. So that's something that I would love to know more details about but I will explain more about why I struggle a little bit with this case very shortly um, now when after they searched his home uh, they they, they uh, arrested him and they were driving him back to London that was the police driving David back to London uh, to interview him because they need to do it in the police station uh, whilst he was in the car uh, he said to uh, uh, superintendent tenant is she really dead he said Yes, uh, David said, uh, well, she was getting really upset as I went out. And while they were in the car, then all of a sudden he said, hey, hey, you feel here. And he got the detective's hand and put it onto his head where the bump was. And he did that a couple of times during the interview. He's desperate for people to feel the bump on his head where he said uh, she hit him. Um, as part of the investigation to prove where he was going, uh, they found the train that he got from King's Cross back to Stevenage. Um, they found out where he was sitting and they took the seat covers off, but they didn't find any blood on it. But then again, this was uh, nine days later. So uh, it might not have been there. Uh, so obviously he was charged with murder. He was cautioned. Uh, when he was cautioned, he nodded, but he didn't say anything. Uh, he didn't object to having a blood sample taken. But basically, much, he pretty much knew this was game over do you know he helped the police as much as he possibly could and that day i removed this man's name but deliberately um the the doctor who worked for the police was called dr james gossip i like that dr james Goss gossip but it kind of ruins the story slightly when you've got a, a uh a character called james gossip in the other episodes i did there was the there was ds dick <laughs> Which always makes it. I had to remove his name because it was like you can't tell a serious story and then have someone called Dick. Um, so, uh, but uh, Dr. James Gossip, he looked 
at uh, David's head injury and he said it was a small abrasion on the top of the hairline, about half an inch long. It was caused by something blunt, but not a heavy blow and there was no swelling around it. Uh, done that bit. Right. Um, so that was the case. But as I was going through, I was in the archives, I got the file. I got the file which had got all the statements in it. I got the file which had got the crime scene photos in it. I got the file which had got a floor plan. So it's all, I'll post these all on social media or, or if, or, uh, oh, I've just dropped my cake. Oh, man. Ugh. Uh, if you're on my Patreon, uh, you get those like uh, a couple of days earlier than everyone else. And uh, there's also some extras that I won't post anywhere else as well. Uh, so they're on there. But I realised that there was another file uh, of this case in the archives as well. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Let's try and get it out. And then this case was closed it's closed until 2042 it's closed for another what so what's this uh 23 years yeah and it's like hang on why are you giving me all the information in one case but then not all the information in another case and then in there i looked through the details because there's some details in there and it said uh the reason why it's being held back is because there's personal personal information supplied in confidence in there um now, one of the things that isn't really explained in there is how they managed to track him down. Uh, they all gave details of who the man was. I'm having to make the assumption that given the fact that he knew the maid, and he, uh, by what we can tell, he, he, he went there like every couple of weeks to the brothel. He'd been there going there for five years. She knew him by name. She said that they spoke on a regular basis, very much in passing. She knew some basic details about him. So I'm guessing that she knew his name or where he lived or, you know, they were able to track him down some way. But exactly how they tracked him down, that bit has been taken out. So whether what is missing in the story is that he dropped his wallet or he dropped something that was monogrammed or maybe as said with the torch, maybe the torch. Goose outside making an absolute racket. Um... There you go. Shut up! Um, uh, maybe the torch... Uh, maybe it was special. Maybe it was monogrammed. Maybe this was important to the case. Or maybe he dropped his wallet. Or maybe... Maybe there is a, de a really, really, really incriminating detail in there that we're not allowed to know yet for the next 20 years or so. So, uh, yeah. I don't know. There's a gap in the gap in the story which I can't do anything about. There's nothing in the press. There's... Very little is said about this in the papers, even in the local papers. They'd be like, a, 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 it was basically just a byline, like not even the size of, size of a small post-it note. That literally just says "prostitute murdered in Soho flat," and that's it. In some of the papers, though, it was as always with the tabloids. They get the details wrong. They said that she was attacked with an axe. They said that she was. They said uh, that she was twenty-five years old, thirty-two years old, forty years old. One of them said she was French, which she was. One said she was Italian. One said she was German. So the newspapers are so shit at their information, uh, which is why I always try to go back to the source. Because even though even though witnesses are wrong, and my, the episodes I've just deleted will prove that. It's I always find it's better to get as near to first-hand accounts as possible. Otherwise, because newspapers they haven't got time to check for details, and especially now they just bulldoze through it. So. Um, that was that case. 
Uh, hope you enjoyed that. I'm gonna uh, work out. <coughs> oh dear! I'm gonna work out what case to do next week. I think it will be a uh, another very murder Miley one. I'm not too sure what to do about that two-parter yet. I need to rewrite that. But there's some interesting ones coming up in this season. Weirdly, there's a lot of mysteries as well, and I don't know why. I was going through a lot of files, and the, a lot of them had nice twists in it, which I love because I hate very dull cases. Or, or sometimes I like it when I have to go and search for the story inside. But um, a lot of these have mysteries in them. A lot of them are unsolved, and there's there's some. But there's some interesting ones. Uh, the one that I think I might do next week. Uh, when you look at it, you go, "Oh, oh, that doesn't make sense." Do you know there's 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 something going on in someone's life, and I can't work it out. But so that's that. So um, I've got man flu. I'm dying. I'm going to have some Chinese food, which I've got. I'm going to have my cake. I'm going to have my tea. Uh, I'm not going to edit this tonight. I'm going to have a, <coughs> I'm going to have a good rest, and I'm going to get ready to go on the train to do an 800 mile round trip to Scotland. Um, so I hope you enjoyed that. That was all good fun. The, um, as you can hear, the scrapyard is finished. Annoying, isn't it? Literally at the start of this, I was battling against the the scrapyard to compete with it I wonder if I re-record maybe I'm going to do that now I'm going to re-record just in case right hope you enjoyed all enjoyed that and uh, I hope to see you all soon thank you for your patience Uh, have a good week bye ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.